Thank you for tuning in to the Practical Preservation Podcast. Please take a moment to visit our website, practicalpreservationservices.com, for additional information and tips to help you restore your historical home. If you've not done so, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and also like us on Facebook. Welcome to the Practical Preservation Podcast, hosted by Danielle and Jonathan Kepperling. Kepperling Preservation Services is a family-owned business based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, dedicated to the preservation of our built architectural history for today's use as well as future generations. Our weekly podcast provides you with expert advice specific to the unique needs of renovating a historic home, educating by sharing our from-the-trenches preservation knowledge and our guests' expertise, balancing modern needs while maintaining the historical significance, character, and beauty of your period home. Today on the Practical Preservation Podcast, I have uh, Dominique Hawkins with, uh, with me from um, Preservation Design Partnership. Uh, thank you for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for asking. Yes, thank you. So tell me a little bit about your um, background. So I am a preservation architect in Philadelphia. I have lived and worked in Philadelphia all of my life. I have an undergraduate degree in design and the environment from Penn and then got dual master's degrees in architecture and historic preservation. Was that also uh, at Penn? Yeah, also at Penn. Um, I worked for John Milner Associates for, for several years and then worked at Viteta for one year where I worked on the, um, on the Independence um, Mall project, specifically um, Independence Hall and the five uh, buildings on Independence Square, and then started my own practice in 1995. And your... Um I, well, we'll talk a little bit more about your firm. I was just thinking you're completely preservation focused at, at your firm also. So all we do is intervene in historic places and a place could be a building. It could be a site. It could be a campus. It could be a city or a state. Um, but it's 100% preservation um, uh, architecture through planning. Yeah, when I was... Um prepping for, for the, for the podcast I I was on your website and I did think it was very interesting that you go in and help do design guidelines for, for communities, because I think that's important. And I, I don't think that always the municipalities have the resources or the knowledge to, to be able to do that. Uh, actually the, the, um, uh, doing design guidelines actually set me up to deal with flood mitigation because what design guidelines are in essence is translating complex regulatory, um, actions to common day language. Um, it, design guidelines are meant to be consumed by individuals, property owners. And I think one of the challenges that architects and preservationists, um, uh, face is that they're speaking a language that not everyone quite understands. Right. And a similar, in my mind, a similar thing occurs in flood mitigation because FEMA, Army Corps of Engineers, floodplain managers speaks this, speak this alternate language. Um, a lot of preservationists don't understand what they mean, or architects, or planners, um, and certainly not homeowners. So one of the things that I have tried to do is actually be that bridge based upon my experience with writing design guidelines. Yeah. 
I, and I think that that's important. And I, I know that sometimes I'll start talking and then I'll be, and I'll start to see like the homeowner that I'm talking to, like drift off. And I'm like, wait, you didn't understand what I said. What, what, what words do we need to, what words do we need to define? <laughs> so yeah, and I think it happens to everybody because you just assume that people know what you know. <laughs> Well, and, and, and the complication and flood mitigation is the same word is used different by architects, by historic preservation, by Army Corps of Engineers, and by FEMA. Oh, so no. That, yeah. Definitions. And what I did to, to really understand it, and I don't claim to be an expert, but to be able to digest the information that's out there is I actually wrote myself across glossary. So I can say mm -hmm. what is, if I'm reading a certain um, document, produced by an entity, which, which way are they defining the word? Um, and that took a bit to get back to, or, or to figure out. But that's it. Yeah, that's an important way to navigate through the, the, all the information that is compiled, but just not um, what we're doing to use and integrate it. Maybe I don't know if that's the right, the right word or the best word. Um, but you know, because the, the, it does impact so many different groups and, and to not have, everybody using the same language or the same definitions, I, I can imagine that would be very challenging. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so what, uh, what brought you into, um, into preservation and, and wanting, to, wanting to preserve things? Well, I started off in architecture and unfortunately I will say, or fortunately, my first job was doing, um, I'll say, um, houses on farms, meaning you take a lovely piece of farmland and then, you know, plop a bunch of housing, a housing development on it. And I realized I was very interested in the built environment and architecture, but the, the, um, the, the, the science and technology or the, or the challenge of doing um, that kind of residential architecture didn't resonate with me. Right. Um, I ended up meeting, you know, I, I got into preservation in the 80s. This is like mm -hmm. early. Yeah, <laughs> in, yeah. In the grand scheme of things. So I didn't necessarily know of it as a career. I met a couple of women who worked at John Milner Associates through one of my volunteer activities and ended up interviewing there, got a job, um, and then my eyes opened up in terms of what that possibility was. Um, and I really appreciate, I'll say, the science and technology of saving something old. It's, uh, you know, it's not, it's not sort of all fussy traditional. I mean, the reality right. is old buildings have to work today, and to make them work today, it requires the input of a lot of technology that then has to be invisible. Right, yeah, yeah, and, and that, that is a challenge, um, because it does, it, it has to be functional, or it's not, it's not going to, it's not serving any, anybody any purpose. Correct. Yeah. So, okay. So tell me um, a little bit about your, your firm. We've kind of touched a little bit about the things that you do, but what services do you offer? Do you, um, you know, do you limit yourself to a geographic area? Um, so we will work anywhere in the United States and um, uh, my partner has actually not, not under the umbrella of our firm, although we considered it, our partner, my partner has even worked in Alaska. So um, our geography is the United States. We do um, everything from very large scale planning projects to also very um, jewel box um, little problems to solve. Mm -hmm. So it, it, there's no project too big or too small for us to consider. <laughs> um, but the, you know, our goal is to provide 
um, to speak for either the building, the site, the community in a way that allows sort of its best its best step to or its best foot to move forward. So, so we end up becoming the voice of of the building. I'll use the building as an example, right? And and try and figure out the most compatible, sympathetic ways to achieve the pro the client's goals. Yeah. Um, and the, the methodology of problem solving is really the same, whether it's a building, a site, or, you know, uh, a city. Right. Um, <clears throat> and, so, yeah, oh, so go ahead. So it's really, so it's really a question of, of balancing all the desired um, with what is practical and, and, and makes sense and maintains that historic integrity, because in yeah. the end, that's, that's what our principal mission is. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think that that, I think that that if you're coming from a preservation standpoint, that's always like the ultimate goal. You need to, you know, take modern day goals and, and needs and make sure that you're, you know, retaining as much of the historic integrity as you can. I think that that's, I, I think that that's, that's like the ultimate goal. And it, at least in my mind should be in, in preservation. So, so, and then, so this kind of got you uh, working with the design guides and things got you into the flood mitigation and disaster preparedness. And actually, I know that I mentioned it when we were chatting about doing the interview that we had, um, or we have a, a, a viewer to our preservation coffee break who brought your name up to us and she lives in, in Lewis, Delaware. And she was telling us, you know, she was asking my opinion about if they have to raise a building up, how do they show the difference you know like that building was not at that height you know before what what do they need to do and i'll 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 tell you what my what my initial thought was but and you can tell me you know if you have a different um a different um uh we, we if you would have given a different answer so my initial thought was that it, you would treat it the same way you would treat any other addition to a building where you would not necessarily make it look the same but you know make sure that you can tell that it was a a, a that a change was made. Is, is that how you would typically approach that? So this is where the intersection of regulation comes with, um, with sort of aesthetic. Right. Things, right. So, so here's the, here are the intersecting factors. So preservationists have been historically taught that what we are trying to do is minimize change. Right. right? Architects are taught that you must maintain public safety. Yeah. Flood mitigation is taught that you must keep the water out. Who wins? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, so they all, they all at first glance seem like they're conflicting views and, and, and approaches. And right. they are. And the importance of understanding the language is being able to say, what does, what does keeping the water out really mean? What does, what does you know, safety, public safety in terms of the construction um, how can that be achieved? And as a preservation professional, how do I make those changes, which there will be changes, right. um, um, how do I uh, frame them in such a way that the, the historic integrity has been maintained? Yeah. Okay. So, so there, there's my vocabulary, right? So those are the, the three languages that, that I have taught myself. Right. And, it's sort of like learning Chinese, <laughs> so it's, it's a whole different thing. So what I, so as, as we were talking about earlier, every, every one of those has its own sort of terminology issues. Right. 
And understanding flood terminology is important because once you understand it and can read their maps and know what they're, they're requiring, and also understand what is the difference between what the regulations require, what the, what the property owner wants, and the impact of flood insurance, you know, those are the things that are driving right. the equation. Um, uh, once you understand what those are, then you can start getting creative about the solutions. But if you are operating in a vacuum of not knowing those, then you can't mitigate something you don't understand. You're relying on other people to tell you, but, but my insurance company told me I have to. Right, right. right. So um, from, a, from a, um, like a historical commission role, you are instantly at a disadvantage unless you understand the language. Yeah, I can, so I can answer, see that, yeah. <laughs> so my answer would be different. Okay. So my answer, or, or partially different, mm -hmm. I would start with, and now I'm going to speak flood, so I'm speaking that, that I'm speaking Chinese. <laughs> I would start with, well, what is the base flood elevation at your house? What is the design flood elevation? What is your first floor height relative to those? And how much do you really have to lift your house? Right. Okay, so you have to lift it one foot, two foot, three foot, and then, you know, whatever it might be, and it's going to vary. And then if you have to lift it three feet, how can we then, from a preservation point of view, make sure that you can get to your front door because now it's three feet higher in the right. air. Yeah. The stairs are higher. So there's the access point of view. And we're seeing three feet more of a foundation of some mm -hmm. sort. Now, what are the materials? What is the style? What is the whatever? And how do we address that? How is the property sited on the, on the lot? Is it right up against the street? Is it pushed back 20 feet? Right. So all of those start to, to start to play into the answer, but I first have to speak flood because that's the driver. And that makes sense to me. Um, I was, I maybe, I, I don't remember if it was earlier this year or late last year, we did um, the, uh, one of the um, gentlemen from Wolf House, or not Wolf, um, um, uh, Eastern Maryland House Movers was on the podcast and he was telling me that he, that they've lifted the same house multiple times because the, the homeowners didn't want to lift as much as they needed to, which I just think is kind of, you know, that it's, it seems a little wasteful to me too. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, <laughs> I won't speak to that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, but, um, but I, I, that, that approach makes sense to me because it's looking, it's taking a holistic approach rather than we're just going to look at one slice. Um, well, it's, it's also recognizing that two houses that may be next door to each other have different conditions. Yeah. Yeah. And those properties at the top of the hill will have different conditions than those at the bottom of the hill. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So that, and that's, that's really hard because in writing design guidelines, what you want to do is be able to say, you know, you can lift your house up to two feet. Well, that may be fine. If I'm in the middle of the hill, I may not have to lift it all at the top of the hill and at right. the bottom of the hill, I might need five. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and I, and I think that that there needs to be some flexibility there. Um, so I, I, I agree with that. And I know when we were chatting, um, when we were setting this up, you were talking about, it's not just the sea level, it's also 
the lakes and and uh, rivers and other waterways that that are being impacted um, with the historic buildings. So um, the basic the so part of why I got into this or how I got into this is um, I did a lot of work in New Orleans post Katrina, and I was I started seeing the impact of of elevating houses to meet flood requirements and what that did in neighborhoods. Yeah. And as I moved around the country doing design guidelines in different places, the, consist the consistent theme is all these places are actually on water. And I'm not saying that every historic place right. is on water, but water provides transportation, food, um, uh, commerce, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of earlier settlements were along waterways. Yes. Um, and if you take that premise and if you, um, you know, look at current patterns, whether or not one believes in, in climate change or not, if you look at current patterns, right. um, it is flooding more and more in a lot of places. You know, all the flooding in the Midwest, there's not an ocean for a thousand miles, but it's flooding yeah. in the Midwest. Yes. So, um, and I think there are different levels of what that is happening um, you know, across the United States, certainly, and everyone has their own sort of stories to tell. Um, so, so um, if it's if it's flooding more and more as preservation and preservation commissions, we have to really start uh, finding ways that we can help people to hold on to their their homes, businesses, buildings. Um, and and have them continue to be useful. Otherwise, they'll be abandoned. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And are you when you're working with the communities to to come up with the design guidelines? Are you finding that you that the solutions have to be very customized to each community, or are, is there are there things that you can take to, from like to across the country? Well, I mean, the solutions for, for a row house community, um, commercial, so there, there, there's, there are row houses, there are, are houses that sit on, you know, the quarter acre, the half acre, the acre, right? So right. all of those will have different levels of solutions or different, different opportunities for, for solutions. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also differences in the flood regulations, again, we speak all the languages, um, between commercial and residential buildings in terms of what's permitted under each of those right. to allow for the benefit of flood insurance reduction. So, so if you, so there's no, it's not a one, one size fits all solution. Um, although there's going to be common commonality in the same right. way that the commonality and design guidelines, you know, you want people to keep their brick facades repointed, right? That's going to be the same in all places. You know, you want them to restore their windows if possible. That's going to be the same in all places. Um, but the, but the way it's applied in each place is actually different. Yeah. And then do you, do your guidelines, um, address how to retain historic context if the building actually has to be moved? Um, so, um, one of the things that I have endeavored not to do is to, um, um, 
so what I, the way I have, I have been approaching um, flood design guidelines, which are different than regular design guidelines, right. is really to focus on the flood issues. I think the Park Service has, has very good information related to how to move a historic building. Okay. Um, but I think, uh, you know, I don't need to repeat what they've written in that <laughs> because I think it's all there. Mm -hmm. So I will say I give the, the highlights, the bullets to that, and then... Right. Um, really talk about what are the what are the challenges? What are the physical challenges of moving a building? Right, um, and understand that if you move it and you change the historic context, you might lose that that designation. And if you lose that designation, you know this is where it gets scary. Then the flood people come up and say you're no longer historic. Now you must comply with all of our rules. Right. So yeah. I'd rather, yeah. Yeah. So I'd rather focus my attention on the things that perhaps we're less familiar with than repeat what the park service i think has has um, put in our heads already <laughs> well and i when you said that i hadn't even thought about that but that is an exemption in the existing building code to to floodplains so that and and we've used that just in like like small like stream kind of situations but yeah i now now that you're saying that that makes total sense that you want to keep that historic designation so you keep that that um that exemption. Well, yes, 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 and no. Okay. An exemption is an exemption. So what it means is that we're accepting the fact that you are, will not be as flood resilient as you right. would otherwise be. So that exemption comes at a cost. You are more vulnerable to flooding. So exemptions are good and they're not good because it may also provide a false sense of security that doesn't actually exist. Right. That And that is true. Um, well, and, and you have to it does yeah 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 it it does it i think sometimes that does create a false sense of security but i think um th it's definitely something that people have to people that live in you know near near waterways that you know i'm thinking about ellicott city and maryland that's been flooded twice in in the past few years like there people who live in these communities need to need to have some some solutions or some options um um that i don't and i and i don't i don't have those but i i'm thinking that the more that we talk about it and and the more that the municipalities are realizing that they need to put some plans in place i think that helps do you agree or do you think that that kind of helps highlight the the problem for people that maybe they weren't thinking about it before or previously so one of the one of the um, mitigation options that ended up occurring through the Ellicott City dual flood is there was an agreement reached to actually remove some of the historic buildings to provide a place for the water to go. Okay. So in in considering um, the scope of the problem, you know, sometimes you have to make really hard choices, and right. each one of those choices is associated with a property owner, a business that's been there forever, you know, a, a kind of known place in a community. And the reality is that flood mitigation is a series of hard choices, mm -hmm. right? We, we want it to go away. We want it to pretend it's not there. Um, and I likened it to um, there's a book out called On Death and Dying, and it's sort of the uh, different phases that you go through from, from denial through acceptance of the fact that you're dying. Well, we're in denial through acceptance for the fact that we have flooding. Right. And, and, and people are pretending it's not there and living the high life, but the reality is a lot of places we currently enjoy 
you know, our children, so to speak, will not be enjoying when they right. open up. So. Yeah. And um, at current, our um, the way our the way we value or put value on land as a as a commodity <laughs> or property as a commodity to um, give to our children, you know, sort of the inheritance kind of um, thought process. Um, as places flood more and more, their value decreases and it will cause problems. Yeah. Yeah. And I can, I, I, um, I agree with that. And I think that that's, I, I don't think that a lot of people, I don't think it's something that people focus on, on in day to that day. And I think it's something that maybe needs to, needs to be brought up more in the, just the, all the changes that are happening in, within the climate, not just the flooding, but the flooding is something that I know is happening more and more than, than it, than it did before. Well, I actually, I know a, um, an architect and she has been looking into flood mitigation and she lives outside of Norfolk. And so um, she, her, her property, her neighborhood floods regularly. And she actually sat her children down and said, you know, we love our house and we're staying here as long as we can, but don't expect to get any inheritance out of it. Yeah. That's a, that's a hard conversation. That is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to know that it'll all just be, you know, underwater. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, so, what challenges or trends do you do you see um, in preservation? In the whole profession, <laughs> right, whatever you want to pick. <laughs> that's, that's a big. That's an open-ended question. Um, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna focus this down to to the flood issues sure. because I think that that is that is the topic for which you called me, and <laughs> so I don't think I can speak to the whole profession at the moment. Um, so one of the one of the challenges that I see relative to um, uh, the marrying of of flood mitigation and preservation is that um, there is this general denial about the fact that it's happening. I mean, people are sort of starting to wake up, but they're waking up. Um, you know, block by block, community by com neighborhood right. by neighborhood, community by community, and there's still this this big sense that it's somebody else's problem and it won't happen to me. And um, the reality is, it takes it takes an Ellicott City like storm to to really kind of jolt us into action. And by then, it's almost I won't say too late, but it's unfortunate that the option to do things incrementally is lost and it's only as a reaction to a recovery situation after a flood that you're really starting to think about it or have the discussions as a community right um so it's i will liken it to the american with disabilities act so we all freaked out when the ramp started going on building <laughs> and then we all realized that we can actually design nice ramps and then we can put them in ways that maybe, you know, isn't a slab of concrete across the front of the building. Right. So now we, now we have this, this new challenge of how do we deal with, um, how do we deal with whatever the mitigation um, measures are for, for flood? And there are different ones. So elevation is, is certainly one of them and most common upon for residential uh, buildings. But how do we deal with all of the different flood mitigation um, um, choices and minimize their, their impact on the historic character of the places we love. Um, 
And at the moment, or when it, when the flood hits and we're in recovery mode, the people who are making that choices are floodplain managers, not preservationists. Right, right. And so that they they care less about the buildings and about the historic the historic places than they care about. You know, we need to stop the flood. From they, they care about public safety above right. buildings. So yeah. but if we can collectively make our buildings safer, then the level of impact immediately post-flood will be less. Yeah, that, so that really makes sense. Proactive, it requires a proactive um, attention that it is currently not getting. I, I, I think that that makes a lot of sense to me. Do you, is there anything that you wanted to cover that I didn't think remember to ask you or that you thought of while we were talking? Um, so, you know, I've, I've talked on this subject, I've written on this subject probably more than most preservation architects, I would argue, and, um, and talked on it quite a bit. I think, I think the thing to keep in mind is that um, uh, all, all historic places has, have evolved over time. There's no longer horses and buggies running down the center of, of roads. You know, we've, we've put, um, um, wings on buildings for toilet rooms and you know <laughs> bathrooms and all of those things change over time and and we as we preservationists as a community really need to step back and say you know it's okay for things to change we just have to manage that change in a way that um, saves the historic resource over time and um, and keeps people and property safe um, However, we also have to acknowledge that there are going to be some places that it may not make sense to keep anymore. Right. And, and that's those hard choices. Those are the hard choices. And, and I think trying to be practical about what that is, understanding that each one of those is tied to a person, a family, a community, and maybe something that's much beloved locally. Is is the conversation I would rather have before the disaster than after? Right, right. And not that it won't be emotional, but it, I think the decisions could be made in a more maybe I don't know. I don't know. Like it, it, they could be made in a way that it's not we're we're just going to take this from you because you know this happened. You know, it can be maybe you can get buy-in hopefully. <laughs> Before you're before you're going in and 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 taking things by eminent domain and causing you know all kinds of hard feelings, right? And and it's also it's also there you know we've we've focused on in this talk really about mitigation at the property level. There is community wide mitigation right. um, that can occur, and that requires participation and buy in by by the people who live there. Um, um, you know, but first we have to speak the language. We have to start to understand the rules and, and be able to participate in those conversations in a meaningful way. Yeah, yeah I agree. So is there anything that you are, would like to promote? Are you doing any seminars or anything? I know that like life is kind of upside down right now. So I didn't know if you have any, anything that you're doing that you wanted to mention. Um, so I did uh, recently, and I apologize, I don't have dates in front of me. I recently did a seminar for Preservation Delaware on, I'll say, part one of flood mitigation. Okay. And, and um, my understanding is that's available on their website. Um, part two is going to focus um, on, on 
actual individual properties and mitigation options. And that's going to be on September um, the 16th, I believe, at noon. Okay. I will make sure that we have links to the Preservation Delaware website on our website when we put when this goes up so that you um, that people can find it and, and, and watch those webinars. Um, and how how can our listeners contact you? Um, well, let me get, let me give you one more. I've also um, been working with um, the state of New Jersey and Rutgers University um, in doing a series of flood mitigation talks. Um, one has been uh, done, and that was probably in June. I don't know if it's available or not, but we are going to have two more coming up, um, probably October and November. Those dates have yet to be scheduled. Okay, very good. And would that be um, would that be on the Rutgers University website, probably? Yeah, it's through Rutgers University, and I could I could send you um, um, the their continuing education seminar page, and okay. and once we get a date. Okay, that would be great because we'll make sure that we have those on the website too for anybody who wants to attend. Okay, and then um, how can our listeners contact you? Um, well, in the age of COVID, email's best. <laughs> um, so my email address is dhawkins at pdparchitects.com. Okay, very good. Well, thank you so much for, for your time today. I enjoyed our discussion. I feel like I learned. I learned some some things and some some more vocabulary words and and ways to ways to explain you know what's happening. So I, I really appreciate that. Oh, it was a pleasure. So thank thank you for asking. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Practical Preservation Podcast. The resources discussed during this episode are on our website at practicalpreservationservices.com forward slash podcast. If you received value from this episode and know someone else that will get value from it as well, please share it with them. Join us next week for another episode of the Practical Preservation Podcast. For more information on restoring your historic home, visit practicalpreservationservices.com.